Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, the latest from the state capitol and a local perspective on Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But first... May 25th, 2020 represents an inflection point in our community. On that day, a man tragically and senselessly lost his life at the hands of law enforcement. After just watching what happened to Kim Potter, I was like, I'm still going to believe and I have faith because I just wanted some time to be served from somebody for what happened to my brother. This is just accountability. It can never be justice because I can never get charged back. A Minnesota jury finds three former Minneapolis police officers guilty for violating George Floyd's civil rights. The jury said the three men violated Floyd's civil rights when they failed to provide him with medical care as Derek Chauvin kneeled on his neck during an arrest two years ago. In the aftermath of this week's verdict, I spoke with former U.S. Attorney for Minnesota Tom Heffelfinger about the case. Do you think that the fact that they were found guilty on all of the charges is uh, significant in that it sends some sort of a message about um, the, the way police handled specifically George Floyd? Well, I think it goes beyond George Floyd. I think there's a clear message from this jury, at least, that uh, the duty to intervene when another officer is engaging in excessive behavior, that that duty to intervene is tantamount. Uh, It really says if you're an officer out there, you better be watching what your partner's doing, and if he or she is out of line, you better step in or you're going to be in as much trouble as he or she. Now, the three officers are set for a state trial in June. What kind of an impact might the uh, verdict here have on that? Because the jury in this case found that uh, the death of George Floyd was a foreseeable fact for the failure to intervene, uh, the sentences here are likely to be higher uh, than uh, the federal sentences for these three are likely to be higher than the state sentences would be if they were convicted there. I uh, think that that sort of necessitates both the prosecution and the defense in the state case to uh, try to resolve that matter at the same time as these men are facing sentencing on the federal was the guilty on all charges verdict surprising to you? Uh, yes, it was. I had personally expected at least one of these officers to be found not guilty. And I thought there was a very real, reasonable chance of that based on the facts. Uh, and when none were, uh, I it was pretty clear to me that the, this jury focused on the duty to intervene as tantamount to the underlying act in which Mr. Mr. Chauvin engaged in. So, yeah, I I was surprised. Do you in any way take the fact that the jury did come to a conclusion and a unanimous conclusion like this as quickly as it did as as a a sign that perhaps they um, didn't do enough to consider the charges? Oh, I can't I wouldn't say that. They spent two full days working on it. The case 
it's not the trial was not that long and the evidence was comparatively short uh so i it, it's i'm not saying they disregarded the judge's instructions to give the defendants individualized consideration but uh in it, i believe the evidence would have supported a decision from this jury that would have found a re- either one or more of these defendants not guilty uh, or some kind of a, what I would call a split verdict. Uh, the fact that they didn't tells me that the duty to intervene uh, was con- what outweighed everything uh, in this matter. Uh, Tom, do you see this verdict as having a significant impact on uh, how the Minneapolis Police Department operates moving forward? I think it's going to have a significant impact on how police in Minnesota function moving forward. This isn't limited to Minnesota. Number one, this is a federal case, so it covers the entire state. And number two, the issues related to duty to intervene and and those type of issues apply to all police. Thank you to my guest, former U.S. Attorney for Minnesota, Tom Heffelfinger. Up next, the latest from the state capitol when Minnesota Matters returns. Minnesota Rural Electric Cooperatives. Who are we? We're your neighbors, co-workers, and friends. That's right, we live and work in the community too. Because of that, we're committed to making sure our electric services stay reliable, affordable, and safe. Throughout the state, Minnesota electric co-ops work independent of each other, but with the same goal, provide power to Minnesota. You have so many other things to worry about. Your electricity isn't one of them. Minnesota Rural Electric Cooperatives, bringing power to the people of Minnesota. Considering an online pharmacy? Explore BeSafeRx to find useful information and resources to help you purchase medicines safely online. A safe online pharmacy requires a doctor's prescription, has an address in the United States, has a licensed pharmacist, and is licensed by a state pharmacy board. It's best to stay away from online pharmacies that don't meet these criteria. Discover more helpful tips and resources at BeSafeRx. Go to FDA.gov slash BeSafeRx. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. The news spotlight this week was on Ukraine and the verdict in the federal civil rights trial of three officers charged in George Floyd's death. But MNN's Bill Werner reports there was plenty going on at the Minnesota legislature also. Scott, Senate Republicans were hinting at something big, and this week they proposed... The largest tax relief package, the largest tax cut in our state's history. Pointing to a nearly $8 billion budget surplus, Majority Leader Jeremy Miller and fellow Republicans proposed cutting Minnesota's first-tier income tax rate nearly in half, which would reduce state taxes for all incomes. Rochester Senator Carla Nelson says to the tune of... A family of four making $100,000 will receive a tax break. That will be $1,066 per year every year going forward. Democrats respond those tax cuts will also help millionaires and billionaires while they, DFLers, are focused on helping those who need it most. Senate Republicans also ramped up their push to completely eliminate state tax on Social Security benefits regardless of income and they got an earful from citizens on both sides during this week's hearing. Stewartville resident Barry Bisbee agreed with Republicans that citizens have already paid tax on that hard-earned money. They've already had their income deducted as a tax from their paycheck year after year 
as they worked. Mine was first deducted in 1968 when I worked at Camp Tickawa and I was a dishwasher. But Rochester resident Patrick Gannon says totally eliminating state tax on Social Security has little benefit to low-income people and says a relative of his not in that position. He told me that he uses his monthly Social Security check to pay the monthly lease payment on his Lexus. Also this week, Democrats controlling the Minnesota House passed a bill to use $1 billion of the state's budget surplus, so 667,000 essential workers in the state could each get $1,500 COVID bonuses. But that measure has little chance in the Senate. St. Michael Republican Eric Lucero pointed to inflation that he blames on massive government borrowing and urged a no vote. Not because our frontline workers aren't important, but because Democrats seek to continue to make worse the price increases. House Democratic Majority Leader Ryan Winkler responded, nothing but excuses for not passing the bill. The worst I've heard is that somehow giving more workers more money is going to make the economy worse. Prospects for the bonuses got even dimmer when, as Senate Republicans rolled out their tax cut plan, Majority Leader Jeremy Miller said it's not fair to pick winners and losers, to choose some workers and not others. So we are proposing this tax relief package that provides all Minnesota workers significant tax relief that's permanent, and ongoing, not one time. A proposal for an electric vehicle tax turned some heads this week when an influential Republican, Hutchinson Senator Scott Newman, said he is for it. It isn't right and it's not fair that we have electric vehicles on the road, using our roads, using our transportation system, and they are not paying an equivalent of a gas tax. Newman says the gasoline tax is a dying star and a new revenue source must be found to address the state's continued shortage of funds for roads and bridges. And this week... This is just another way to... um Break up the unions, said Brooklyn Center Democrat Chris Eaton about a bill moving forward in the Minnesota Senate that would allow nurses from other states to work in Minnesota and Minnesota nurses to work elsewhere as long as they meet standards in a national compact. Republican Senator Carla Nelson from Rochester points to a survey by the State Board of Nursing. 78% of Minnesota nurses with an active license support the state joining the compact. But Minnesota Nurses Association President Mary Turner says as head of a union representing 80% of bedside nurses, there's no shortage, she says, of RNs in Minnesota. What we face is a shortage of nurses willing to work in unsafe conditions that jeopardize the health of their patients their license, and their mental health. Opponents say the problem is hospitals forcing nurses to do more with less until they've given all they can. Wendy Wall, nurse at Sanford Health in Thief River Falls. Nurses are leaving the bedside, and as we walk away, it seems the question is not why are they walking away and what can we do to make them stay? but instead seeking to replace us with temporary out-of-state workers. Some opponents call it union-busting, but Val Riley with Fresenius Medical Care responds many nurses support Minnesota joining a national compact. I am one of over 100,000 RNs in the state of Minnesota, and we're not here to bust a union. You know, my father was a union member. Scott? Thank you, Bill. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. After months of tensions, Russian forces launched a full-scale military invasion of Ukraine. The impacts are being felt right here at home. Tasha Radel has more. 
Minnesota is home to around 17,000 Ukrainian Americans, and many of them have loved ones currently in Ukraine, including my guest today, Stephen Vitvitsky, who is also a member of the Ukrainian American Community Center in Minneapolis. As we know, Russia launched a full-scale invasion of Ukraine before dawn on Thursday with a series of missile attacks. The assault quickly spread across central and eastern Ukraine as Russian forces attacked the country from three sides. Stephen, there's no better first question than this. How are you doing? Um, It's devastating to witness. It's heartbreaking to watch from halfway around the world. Um, I think every Ukrainian-American in Minnesota and and most Ukrainian-Americans living around the world, I'm sorry, around the country, um, have family in Ukraine and different parts of Ukraine. Um, And, you know, contrary to the claims by uh, Russian media or Putin himself that um, this was about some sort of um, defense of the two so-called People's Republics of Donetsk and Luhansk in eastern Ukraine, it's very clear and evident that a full-scale invasion of the entirety of Ukraine is underway. Um, Cities in far western Ukraine, Ivano-Frankivsk, appear to have been shelled and bombed, among uh, many others across the country. You hit on this. Ukraine was not in any conflict with Russia, and this aggression is by Russia and Russia alone. In no way, shape, or form did Ukraine initiate this. So I have to ask why, just why? None of this makes sense. None of this is rational. None of this seems to serve a purpose other than um, building Russian, Russia building empire, Putin building empire, um, and really pursuing various myths that he and uh, Russia have really promulgated over the course of the last Certainly, the last few months here, very recently, but you know, over the last years, and really, this is something that's nothing new to Ukrainians, uh, both in Ukraine and around the world. Stephen, you currently have family in Ukraine. I do. Yes, um, we have family residing in a, the city of Chernivtsi, which is in western Ukraine, and we also have family uh, residing in the city of Lviv in western Ukraine. Have you been in contact with your loved ones? Yes, uh, we have. Um, I've been in contact. Uh, over the last few weeks with our family in Chernivtsi. Um, we, I have a cousin there as well as uh, his parents, uh, my uncle and aunt. Uh, he also has a family of his own. Um, I've been in contact with them even uh, last night and this morning as well. And again, I have to ask, how are they doing? Uh, as, as, as well as, as anyone can um, under military invasion. Um, they are trying to maintain Um, you know, a level head. Uh, They are very aware of the situation. Obviously, they're experiencing it firsthand. Um, They are no strangers to Russian aggression. After all, Russia has been waging war against Ukraine and eastern Ukraine since 2014. Um, And so our family there is trying to make, um, I'm not quite sure how to put this, but they're doing what they can. I think uh, they're thinking about their, their own family, their own loved ones. Um, I, I know that my cousin is thinking about his three young children um, and how to keep them safe. Um, but also uh, they, like many Ukrainians um, across the country, are also thinking about what they need to do uh, to rise to the occasion and defend Ukraine. 
Stephen, why is it so important Americans not only care, but truly understand and educate themselves on what's happening in Ukraine? Yeah, thanks. Um, for, uh, for various reasons, I'll, I'll give you a couple. Um, the first is that in 1994, when Ukraine signed the Budapest Memorandum uh, with the U.S., the United Kingdom, and Russia as signatories, believe it or not, uh, it gave up what at the time was estimated to be the third largest nuclear arsenal following the breakup of the Soviet Union. In exchange for giving up the nuclear weapons, um, they received assurances from all three remaining signatories, including Russia, the United States, and the UK, that they would respect Ukraine's sovereignty, they would respect and defend Ukraine's territorial integrity, and that included the borders um, of Ukraine at the time in 1994. Um, it's not lost on me that one of those signatories has since uh, not only invaded Ukrainian territory uh, and broken their commitment, but I do think that it's important that America recognize and uphold its own commitments as it makes makes them around the world. As you can imagine, um, this is the potential here for other states who are either nuclear weapons equipped or might aspire to be nuclear weapons equipped. This the current situation sends a message that um, de-armament is not effective, that the only effective way to protect yourself because you are on your own um, is to arm yourself to the teeth. And I think that the U.S. should take that commitment seriously. I've been visiting with Stephen Vitvitsky, a member of the Ukrainian American Community Center in Minneapolis. Coming up after the break, we focus on how NATO plays a role in Ukraine and the region. You, my friend, have connections in the government. Yes, you. USA.gov, the official source for government information on thousands of topics. And like any good connection, there's no telling where it can take you. Why, one day you're getting student loan information. Next thing you know, you need job hunting tips. Today's road construction info could have you searching for telecommuting ideas tomorrow. The more you use USA.gov, the more uses you'll find for it. Passport applications, for example. They've been known to lead to a sudden interest in travel advisories. Our new mobile apps will even update you on the go. So whether you have information to get or ideas to give your government, check out USA.gov. Who knows? Lottery results today could lead to retirement planning tomorrow. USA.gov. With the right connections, there's no telling where you can go. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Tasha Radel. Today I've been visiting with Stephen Vitvitsky, a member of the Ukrainian American Community Center in Minneapolis. Stephen, I want to kind of shift gears a little bit. Since Ukraine is not a part of NATO, our allies are really limited to what we can and can't do within Ukraine. Do you feel uh, the Ukrainian citizens are frustrated with this or disappointed? Well, Ukrainians harbor no illusions about the fact that they are not currently NATO members. Um, I think a few important things to remember is that despite the fact that NATO and mention of NATO has come up um, daily uh, over the course of the last few months, uh, Ukraine recognizes that it is not a member of NATO. Ukraine should be allowed to join NATO if Ukraine so chooses. 
uh, in alignment with NATO's open door policy. Uh, and this whole notion of NATO or not NATO, NATO expansion, I think it's important to remember that all the states from Eastern and Central Europe that joined NATO um, over the course of the last three decades did so not because NATO was asking them to join, but because they were terrified of precisely what is happening to and in Ukraine right now. So um, as, as it relates to NATO and Ukrainians feeling alone, I think Ukrainians right now feel um, a lot of solidarity from the international community. And I think that that is something that eclipses this notion of NATO. Um, NATO is one tool and one mechanism to fight Russian aggression. But I think that more broadly speaking, more generally speaking, Ukraine right now, at least, you know, in, in the sentiments that have been declared and the various um, denouncements um, that have been issued, uh, has a lot of allies around the world and a lot of friends um, around the world. And, and we'll see what, what kind of shakes out here uh, over the coming days and, and what that looks like. We certainly believe that there are various measures that the United States and our allies can take to support Ukraine without it being a NATO member, for example, uh, unleashing the full scope of sanctions from the U.S., the European Union, and our allies and partners against Russia, including personal sanctions against Putin, all of his oligarch cronies, against Russian banks, against um, Russian financial institutions and infrastructure. So there's a lot that can be done short of having Ukraine be a member of NATO today um, or even uh, the prospect of uh, U.S. troops defending Ukraine. I want to be really, really clear. I think it's important to recognize that Ukraine has not asked uh, for U.S. troops to be in Ukraine or to fight alongside Ukrainians. Ukrainians recognize this is their fight, but there are various things that the U.S. and our allies can do to support Ukraine in its struggle against Russian aggression. President Biden outlined some of the sanctions Russia will face if the aggression continues. Do you feel this will work? I think it's really, really important um, and really positive to see that the U.S. is working hard to rally allies because I think that's really the only effective way to confront a bully. And that is what Russia is in this uh, scenario. Stephen, why is the way we talk about Russia's actions and Ukraine's predicament so important? I, I'll do my best. Um, <laughs> you know, misinformation is a hallmark of Russia's hybrid war. Uh, approach to conflict uh, and to aggression. So uh, misinformation is a cornerstone of the Russian strategy. Um, they, Putin and the Russians have, uh, they know no bounds, or I should say their, their treachery knows no bounds. And I know that's a bit of hyperbole, but um, speaking specifically to the language that's used, it's, it's bizarre that an imperialist autocratic leader of one nation who days ago issued a proclamation that Ukraine does not deserve to exist, should not exist, is only a figment of Russia's imagination. And someone like that calling the country that he is aggressing, uh, you know, suggesting that they are fascist or that they are nationalist or something like that, it's, it's absurd. And I think it's important to remember that Ukraine, outside of Israel, is the only other uh, country in the world that has a Jewish leader. The president, Volodymyr Zelensky of Ukraine, is uh, Jewish. And so to say that, to suggest that Ukraine is fascist and that uh, it needs to be denazified is patently absurd. Um, and so that's a very obvious example 
of Russian misinformation. Uh, but there are various insidious ways um, in which people can support and help inadvertently the Russian cause by the way that they describe the situation in Ukraine. And so it's really important that not only people recognize, but also speak and use words like invasion, uh, like Russian aggression, that they don't, that, that they are unequivocal in the words that they use to make sure that we don't inadvertently lighten the circumstances or soften them or suggest that there is, you know, room for debate, because there really isn't. If you look at the facts on the ground, and I think you mentioned this earlier, um, this is a totally unprovoked war of choice by the Russians. Um, Ukraine has done nothing to provoke Russia. Ukraine has not attacked Russia, has not threatened to attack Russia. Ukraine has not levied hundreds and hundreds of cyber attacks against Russia, as Russia has against Ukraine. There was a campaign over the last two months um, from across the Russian border uh, to call in bomb threats to Ukraine, to thousands of Ukrainian schools um, and cause panic and destabilize Ukraine. And so none of this has happened, you know, uh, back and forth. This is all unilateral aggression from Russia. And so when we talk about things like the Ukraine crisis or conflict, this isn't really conflict. And this isn't really a crisis of Ukraine's making. It should, in fact, be the Russia crisis. Um, and conflict is a misnomer because in the same way that no person in their right mind would describe an assault by one person on another person, uh, an attack, murder, physical assault as tension or um, something like that. It, it is what it is. It's an attack. It's an assault. And that's how we need to talk about this sort of thing. So I think it's fair to say that Russia's actions will have worldwide impacts. Russia's actions um, are in direct violation of um, various uh, international agreements of um, what, what it means to be part of the UN. Uh, and ironically, Russia um, is a Russian ambassador, is, is the president of the UN right now. It is a direct violation of a rules-based world order. Um, and so I think what they have already done qualifies as a game changer. I think what they have already done is rejected the way the world has worked since the Second World War. Um, and they have basically reintroduced um, the prospect of empire building. Uh, as I said before, this is an unprovoked attack. This is not a war of necessity. Um, this is not a reaction to attack. Um, this is 100% completely a war of choice. And so um, I, I can't speak to whether or not this is or isn't the beginning of broader war. Um, I don't think you can rule that out uh, because this, the actions that the Russians have taken by invading Ukraine are totally incompatible with the, as I said, the rules-based order that the the entire rest of the world um, has followed over the last number of decades. Thanks again to my guest, Stephen Vitvitsky, a board member of the Ukrainian American Community Center in Minneapolis. Back to you, Scott. Thank you, Tasha. That is going to do it for us for this week. Thank you so much for listening, and please tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station. Mm-hmm.